So week two, I wish I'd heard a sermon on election. We're not talking about the kind of election that takes place in November. Uh, We are talking about a biblical form of election. Uh, This idea uh, can be nearly as controversial in the church, but we're going to examine it in this text uh, together. Uh, The term elect simply means to select or choose, and it appears in our passage here in verse 4 where we read, Even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Even as God chose us in him. The basic idea of election then is that before the world began, God set his special love upon his people that they might be saved. In other words, the hard truth this morning is that if you are a Christian, it is not because you chose God, but because God has chosen you. We get a definition of election. It's on the front of uh, your bulletin this morning from Wayne Grudem, who says, Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Three headings this morning. Election, what it does, what it doesn't do, and why we should treasure it. What election does, what election doesn't do, and then why we should treasure it. Let's dive in together then, first asking from this text, what is it that election does? Basically, election teaches us three things about God's love, about God's special saving love. The first thing we see in our text is it teaches us that God's saving love is eternal. God has chosen to set his love upon his people from before time began. There has never been a time when he did not love them. We see in verse 4, which we have already read, that he chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. Before the world began, before you had the opportunity to do anything good or the opportunity to do anything bad, the Lord had set his saving love upon his own. If you think of it like when you get pregnant, you haven't had the child yet, but you still have this deep sense of of love for this child. And so you name them. Perhaps you talk to them. Perhaps you read them poetry or play them music or do all sorts of other crazy things that parents do. Why do we do these things? Because though the child has not been born yet, we love them. And that's why a miscarriage or abortion is so traumatic for us, because we are losing something that we love. And in the same way, but of course a much greater way, before the world began, God's creative energy was pregnant with love for his people. He loved them before the world began. Didn't just fall in love in some wishy-washy, sappy way in some summer romance, but loved them eternally from before time began. If you believe in Jesus today, if he is your savior, it is not because you chose him, but because he has set his love upon you from eternity. Second thing we see that election does is that it teaches us not only that God's love is eternal, but also that God's saving love is unconditional. Unconditional. We see this in verse 5, that God has set his love upon his own according to the purpose of his will. So why has God loved some? According to the purpose of his will. He has chosen to do so. In other words, it's not that this love is earned or deserved or merited. There are no requirements, prerequisites, or or stipulations. It is not in response to our own uh, performance, intention, efforts. It is solely according to the purpose of his will. In other words, his love is unconditional. 
Ask the question, why does God love you? And the Bible answers, because he does. Ask, well, why does he love you? And the Bible answers, because he loves you. There is no why to the love of God. It is an unconditional love that he has set upon his people. And some people say, surely this can't be right. Surely God's love is given in response to those who have faith in him. God knows who will have faith in him, and so he loves those people. But again and again, the Bible answers, no, the people believe in him because he has already loved them. Let me give you some texts that, that show this to be true. It's really taught and assumed everywhere in the Bible. For example, in Acts chapter 13, Paul preaches the gospel and we read, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying in the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So it doesn't say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. It says as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God's love was primary. Their response was secondary. Or John 6, verse 65, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So it doesn't say, you know, whoever comes to me will be granted life. It says no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. God's love is primary. Their action is secondary. Or Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, one of the great summaries of the gospel. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this faith, not of yourselves... It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no man can boast. He's saying, yes, you've been saved by your faith, but understand where your faith came from. Faith is not something that you were able to work up in yourself, but it's something that was given to you by the Lord. God loves unconditionally. If you believe in him today, it's not because you chose him, but because he chose you, loving you from eternity unconditionally. Third thing we see in this text is that God's love is also personal. Election teaches us that God's love is personal. God's plan of salvation was not just to cast out a net and catch a few while others slipped by. His plan of salvation is not that he closed his eyes and throws a dart hoping to hit some or pins the tail on the donkey. He doesn't love in a, in a haphazard sort of way, just haphazardly finding his affection drawn to whoever catches his eye. Instead, God's love is an intentional, a purposeful thing. We get a sense of this, of course, from the personal pronouns that Paul uses in our text. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, mine and yours, who has blessed us, has blessed me and you with every blessing. He has chosen us, he has chosen you and I, that we should be holy. He had predestined us that we might be blessed in the beloved. It's this personal and specific love that is applied to his own. It's not generic or haphazard, but he has written your name in the book of life. He has engraved your name on the palms of his hand. He has said that he loves you and will give himself for you. If you believe in him today, it's not because you chose him, but because he chose you. Election says, loving you from eternity past, unconditionally and personally. Now, this doctrine is not always the most popular and uh, makes some people upset, and that's okay. We're all in process, and no one is going to lose their salvation over this, so 
Ever on exhale and relax. Uh, we, are, we are good. However, a lot of the time, the reason people don't like it is really because of a misunderstanding of what the doctrine's teaching. And so let's nuance it a little bit by making clear what election doesn't do. What, what, what election doesn't do. And the first thing we need to point out is that election does not eliminate human freedom. Election does not eliminate human freedom. Some will say, well, election takes away our freedom in decision-making because God has chosen from eternity past who will be saved and who won't be saved, so we don't really have a decision in it. But rather, election uh, actually upholds our liberty and, and in no way absolves us of responsibility for our actions. It includes the idea that whether you accept or re- reject Jesus it is a free choice of your own you accept him or if you reject him you're doing exactly what you want to do two illustrations to try and bring this home first of all if i come over to your house for lunch today and you set before me a burger with bacon and cheese and a salad (laughs) which one will i choose i will choose the burger and if you had me over for a hundred sundays before today I would choose the burger, okay? A hundred out of a hundred times, I'm going to choose the burger. Then I go to my doctor, and my doctor says, James, your cholesterol's high, you're getting fat, you're going to take years off your life here. What happens? The desires begin to change. I show up for lunch next week, I pick the salad. You say, James, for the last a hundred Sundays, you've had the burger. Is someone making you eat the salad? And I say, no. No. My desires have changed. And I want to eat this out. Does the fact that the doctor gave me that advice force me to do it? No, of course not. I've been led to that conclusion, and I freely choose to embrace that conclusion. In the same way, God works in our desires so that we would accept Jesus, but accept him freely. Accept him because we want to. Second illustration that's often used on this topic is the, the picture of it. Imagine you're walking down the street, and you see 20 or 30 people walking down the street and they're all blindfolded. And they're all heading towards this ramp and they walk up the ramp and at the end of the ramp, they fall into a furnace where they burn and die. So you come running up and you say, stop, you're heading toward your death right now. Please stop. And they say, we're not heading toward their death. We're on our way to the beach. We've had lots of rain this week and we're going to keep going. And you say, no, seriously, you're going to die if you don't stop. And they say, Look, we're nearly at the beach. I can feel it's getting warmer. We're going to be fine, right? (laughs) Election says that God swoops in and he takes the blindfold off. So what do people do? They stop. Is that a violation of their free will? Of course not. They are choosing to stop because they see the danger that they are in. And so election says that God works in our desires so that we would freely choose to do what it is that we want to do. Whether we eat salad and stop in our tracks or eat a burger and march to our death, we're doing what we want to do. Election does not eliminate freedom. Second thing it's important to note is that election does not eliminate justice. Some people will say, well, how can this idea be just? God's chosen some, he's not chosen others. It doesn't really sound very fair if you've, if you've not been chosen. How is this just? Two responses to this. First of all, and, and seriously, be careful what you ask for. Because guilty men and women 
don't cry out for justice. We cry out for mercy. And we know that God would have been absolutely faithful, good, true, and just if he condemned everyone who ever sinned, which means every single one of us. We could never accuse the Lord with injustice if he punished us, punished us for what we deserve. And so if he saves any, if he saves any at all, he is demonstrating a grace that goes far beyond the requirements of fairness or justice. Secondly, though, we can note that both election and condemnation are inherently just. The way they work are in themselves just. First, with those who are elect, with those who are saved. It is not that the Lord waves a magic wand, snaps his fingers, and says, they're forgiven. It's that he sends Jesus to walk upon this earth and to die upon the cross to take the punishment that the elect deserve. So it's not that he just sort of does away with justice to let a few people off. It's that he fulfills the requirements of justice by making sure that every sin that was ever committed by a believer has been paid for in full at the cross of Christ. There is something inherently just about the way in which the Lord brings salvation to his people. Secondly, though, and, and somberly, condemnation is, is also inherently just because no one is ever judged for not being chosen by God. Rather, they are judged for what they have done. You understand that on that great day, the Lord won't bring in evidence against anyone that says, I didn't choose you. Rather, he will bring in the evidence of our own sins and of our own failings. Uh, David gave me this illustration. Um, Imagine five of your friends are going to rob a bank. David's got some rough friends. (laughs) And um, you plead with them, don't do this. This is a terrible idea. You're going to get caught. You're going to get in trouble. I really don't want you to go and commit this crime. And they say, it's a great idea. We'll get away with it. We'll be rich. We'd love it, okay? And so on the day of the crime itself, you follow them down to the bank, and as they're walking in, you tackle the last one to the ground and prevent them from committing this crime. One of them has been saved because of what you did. The rest are condemned because of what they did. Those who are condemned could never say to you, you are unjust for saving one. We hold you guilty of our crime." No, one is saved by grace. The rest are condemned because of what what they have done. So condemnation as well as election are both inherently just. Election does not eliminate justice. Thirdly, election does not eliminate questions. Election does not eliminate questions. After discussing this great theme in Romans 9 through 11, and it's a rich, rich section of Scripture, especially Romans 9 on this topic, I encourage you to, to go home and, and read it this afternoon. But after discussing this, this, this great theme of election in Romans 9 through 11, Paul concludes with these words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Augustine reflected upon this theme and said, I can see the depths, but I cannot reach the bottom. In other words, when we reflect upon eternal matters, 
as we try to gain insight into the mind of the Lord, we do so with an awareness of and an acceptance of our own finiteness. And so it is okay to study this topic and still have questions in mind, for we can't exhaust the mind of God. And that's an important thing for a church like ours, a church that believes in, in Reformed theology, to remind itself of, because we have a reputation for being a little bit obnoxious when it comes to truth. It's part of our identity. It's part of who we are. We are these people because we believe these things. And we are right. And you are wrong. And so you can learn from us. Um, We must never have that approach about theology. Uh, We we study it with, with humility. We study it seeking... Uh, to grasp some of the crumbs that the Lord has given to us, but not thinking that we can ever exhaust him. We want to be passionate, but we want to be winsome. So those election does, does not mean that we can eliminate freedom or eliminate justice or eliminate all questions. Lastly, though, I want to spend a few moments reflecting upon why we should treasure this doctrine. Yes, our salvation is not at stake in this debate um, you can be a believer in Jesus Christ and, and not believe in election. Um, I would also say that this is one of the things that is it's not a requirement for membership at our church. What's requirement for membership at our church is, is faith in Jesus Christ. There's all sorts of other things that we might disagree on. However, I really want you to believe in this. Because I believe that your Christian experience will be seriously impoverished if you don't. So let me give you... Uh, Nine reasons why we should treasure. (laughs) Number one, you ready? Notwithstanding all I've said about not being obnoxious, we treasure this teaching of election because it's true. Because it's presented to us in the pages of Scripture. And we aren't a people who come to the Bible and say, I'm going to pick to believe this thing, but not to believe that thing. I choose to believe this because it's helpful. I'm not going to choose that because it's sort of inconvenient. No, we're a people who come to the text and we glorify in what the Lord has said and follow uh, those, those teachings that he has given to us. We are a people who, once we have had the blindfold removed, don't want to put the blindfold back on, even if it would be convenient. We want to glory in those things that are true and exalt in those things that are true, knowing that they come to us from a God who is good, even when we find them hard or difficult. Number two, we should treasure election because it magnifies God's love. It makes God's love seem so much bigger. A lot of the time we get in trouble with election when we start applying it to other people. And I understand that, and there's a lot we can talk about. But just for a moment, apply it to yourself. Try and experience this truth rather than just think about what it means for someone else. That before the world began, the Lord had you in mind. Before the sun and the moon and the stars had been created, the Lord had you in his imagination and loved you. A staggering truth that that demonstrates his, his love is greater than we have given it credit for. Number three, and very much related to that, we should treasure the teaching of election because it magnifies God's grace. It magnifies his grace toward us. If you are saved because you chose God, then there's something that you can take credit for. You know, you prayed the prayer, you had the insight, you were at least more willing than other people who aren't Christians. 
But if you believe that, no, we're saved because God chose us, then you think that there's nothing but grace. It makes his, his grace so large because we understand it's not given in response to what we have done, but freely bestowed because of his love. Number four, we should treasure the doctrine of election because it assures us of our salvation, gives us assurance of our salvation. Now, someone might say, how does that work? Because this doctrine is actually making me not sure of my salvation. What, what if I'm not on the list? You know? Well, time and time again, what the Bible does is it equates the elect, those who have been chosen, as a being of the same as those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus and being elect are synonymous in the scriptures. How do you know if you're elect? If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are one of the elect. Think about it. The New Testament preaching it doesn't, it doesn't go around saying, you know, find ye out if ye are on the list. Okay? It says, repent and believe in Jesus Christ, knowing that those who have been chosen will repent and will believe and will receive eternal life. So if you believe in Jesus this morning, you can know for sure that you will be saved, not even because of the strength of your faith just now, but because of the certainty of his decree from all eternity to save you. It assures you of your salvation. If you're not a Christian this morning, this doctrine is not intended to push you away from the faith. In fact, the reality that you are here, the reality that there is a stirring in your heart, the reality that you are drawn to grace is proof of the fact that the Lord is at work in your life. And so do not use this as as, as an excuse not to come. Whoever comes will never be cast out. They have come in the first place at the Lord's call. This word assures us of our salvation. Fifth, where are we? Fifth, fifth. Fifth, we treasure the teaching of election because it gives us assurance regarding our loved ones. Let me read to you a a section of our our confession of faith. It's just so pastoral. It says, Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when and where and how he pleases. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. He's saying, because of election, we can have peace about children that we lose or any tragic circumstances where someone isn't able to cognitively accept Jesus. That God's plan of salvation is not limited by our ability to say the sinner's prayer. Uh, We had a miscarriage several years ago, and this truth was so powerfully beautiful to us at that time. Not because it told us why this had happened, but because we were able to trust the circumstance to the Lord knowing that his grand plan of salvation was not in any way thwarted by the tragedy that had hit us. Trusting our unborn child to the Lord as surely as we trust our living children to the Lord. Gives us assurance for others. Six, we treasure the doctrine of election because it assures us of our perseverance. I love this one. Um, you know, if I could mess the Christian life up, I would. Right? If it was possible for me to fall away from faith, I would. Why? Because, um, you know, 
holy living is for those holy people over there. And I'm not one of them. And if I could mess this up, I would. And election says, you can't mess this up. God's plan of salvation is bigger than your ability to succeed or fail. I have chosen you before the creation of the world, and my love is not going to run out anytime soon. What I have started, I will complete. You can be sure that you're going to make it to the end, and not because of your own strength. And if you're struggling this morning, it's a really powerful truth that your ability to live as a Christian isn't dependent upon how much faith you can work up, how strong your faith can be, but rather is dependent upon the certainty of his love for you. Number seven, we also treasure this teaching of election because not only does it fuel perseverance, but it also fuels our our holiness. So we don't say, well, we're going to make it to the end, so we'll just live any way we want. Rather, election actually pushes us to desire godly living, to desire the kind of lives that the Lord has designed for us to live. Get a great verse on this in Colossians 3, where we read, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, as God's selected people, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. He's saying, I have elected you to the fullness of life in Christ. And so live into that fullness. Because of who you are, live in this way. It's kind of like when you say to, you know, to one of your children, you're a big third grader now, so live in this way. We trust you now that you're a big third grader to do these things. Live in a manner that's consistent with who you are. That's what election calls us to do. Eight, we treasure election because it fuels missions. It fuels the spread of the gospel. This is another common objection, actually, that election somehow stunts the work of evangelism because if some are going to be saved and some are not, why bother doing anything? Rather, we would say that um, election fuels the work of missions. Let me read this section from Acts chapter 18. The Lord appears to Paul in a vision one night and says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. What does Paul do in response? Does he say, great, there's many in the city who are his people. I'm going to go off and take a vacation. No, he says the very next verse. So Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Because God had people in the city, I'm going to stay here and preach. Because I know that there are people here who will respond to the gospel. And so I'm not wasting my time. And even when life gets hard, and even when there's you know, persecution for sharing the gospel, I'm still going to do it because I know that there will be fruit from this endeavor. I know that this work of evangelism will result in seeing people come to Christ because God has elected that it be so. And so often, uh, Reformed churches will get a hard rap for this. Uh, but really, we should be allowing uh, this teaching to drive us to missions. John Calvin, one of the men most associated with this doctrine, led a ministry and a movement that planted some 2,000 churches in France in his lifetime. And so we want to be a people who find that our, our passion for election drives us, fuels our works of mission. Lastly, ninth, 
we should be passionate and treasure election because it fuels our worship. When you understand election and God's grace for you, when someone says, why are you a Christian? You smile and you laugh and you say, I don't know, it's ridiculous. There is no reason I should be a Christian. There is no reason that God should have saved me. I have done nothing to deserve this. And yet, bizarrely, he has chosen to take me to heaven. It gives us this sense of joyful humility that can do nothing but worship. When you understand election, you realize that from the Lord there is nothing but grace. And so in response, you want there to be nothing but worship. It fuels our worship as a people. Whatever your political persuasion, this is one election I want you to be excited about. God's people have been loved from eternity, unconditionally and personally. Let's embrace this truth together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this rich section of your word which teaches hard and deep things. It is difficult to peer into eternity and into the mind of God. But we thank you for the clarity you have brought, that you are a God who has loved from eternity past, unconditionally and personally. Not in a way that limits our freedom or removes justice or or even answers all our questions, but in a way that has drawn us to yourself, showing us the truth magnifying your love and your grace, giving us a deep assurance of our own salvation, assurance for our loved ones, assurance that we can persevere to the end, giving us motivation and desire to pursue those lives that you have called us to live, to pursue the work of evangelism and missions, and most of all, to fall before you in worship. Father, we gather together in this successful part of the world to confess that we are a ridiculous people and to thank you for your ridiculous love. In Jesus' perfect and matchless name we pray.